One thing I reference really often is Cunningham's Law. It's the law that it's a lot easier to critique things that you can see. It's a lot faster to get to someone to tell you why something's wrong than if you post a question on the internet asking for the right answer. I do that a lot in my work where I will build out a mock, I will build out something quick, and I'll put that in front of someone because it is a lot easier for them to say, why not? And then I can come back and build something that works well, as opposed to trying to have a conversation around what's going to be the best approach here, which I think can be a little amorphous sometimes to get really good input. My name is Stephanie Mertz. I'm the CTO and co-founder of Aizen. This is Code Story. A podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries. Took six months moonlighting. There's nothing on the backhand. Who share what it takes to change an industry. I don't exactly know what to do next. Took many goes to get right. Who built the teams that have their back. Our company is its people. The teams help each other achieve. Most proud of our team. Keeping scalability top of mind. All that infrastructure was a Yes, we've been fighting it as we grow. Total waste of time. The stories you don't read in the headlines. It's not an easy thing to achieve, Mike. Took it off the shelf and dusted it off and tried it again. To ride the ups and downs of the startup life. You need to really it's want it. not just about technology. All this and more on Code Story. I'm your host, Noah Lapart, And today, how Stephanie Mertz created a platform for the Ashitan process to give you a way to manage dormant accounts. This episode is supported by Terso. Terso is the open-source edge database from the creators of LibSQL. Do you put your edge computing close to your users? You should put your data there, too. Terso makes this easy, utilizing the developer experience of SQLite. Access a free starter plan at terso.tech slash codestory. Terso, welcome to the data edge. This episode is brought to you by our friends at MemberStack. MemberStack is the fastest way for you to launch a beautiful Webflow MVP with robust authentication and smooth payments integration. Join companies like Slack and American Airlines in serving millions of members every single day. Get started for free by visiting memberstack.com slash codestory. Stephanie Mertz is into software development because she likes to create something from nothing, i.e. the blank canvas nature of coding. Outside of tech, she loves to garden, grow her own vegetables, and build things out of wood. She also has a beehive, which she claimed was a fantastic way to observe the natural creative process and decompress from the screen. Stephanie and her former co-founder were drawn to solving problems for the behind-the-scenes processes, aka the boring business stuff. When digging into these problems, they kept running into the fact that no one really had a solid achievement process, and eventually, they decided to tackle it. This is the creation story of Eisen. We named the company Eisen after the Eisenhower Interstate Highway System. It's really interesting to us to build out that foundational infrastructure to connect all of these moving parts. We're focusing on the achievement process for banks and financial service firms. So that's a really kind of opaque process that a lot of people haven't seen the inner workings in unless they've had to see it real up close and personal. But Achievement is the space where if you open an account at a bank or financial service firm and then you stop interacting with it, that account goes dormant and that firm actually has to offboard the account 
to send it to be custodied by the state. So we work with those institutions to prevent that process when we can by keeping in contact with end users. And when we can't, we streamline the analysis and remittance process. So my co-founder and I actually met in college and then we went our separate ways. He was most recently a product manager at Coinbase and I was a software engineer at Two Sigma, which is an institutional asset manager. And we're both really drawn to think a lot of overlapping problems in what I would describe as kind of boring business space. So we don't really like to be kind of center of the spotlight in buzzy places. We really like that behind the scenes nitty gritty. And so we built out a team that's really focused on thinking about what those problems are in especially banking and other financial service spaces. And we kept running into how no one seems to have a really streamlined achievement process. Through our research, we didn't go into it thinking, okay, sheetman is definitely what it is. We just went into it thinking we really like operational problems and we were consistently hearing no good solution for a problem that everyone had, even outside of banking and financial services. So tell me about your MVP. So that first version of the product you built, how long did it take you to build and what sort of tools did you use to bring it to life? My thoughts on building MVPs have changed so much through the process of actually building out some. I think now I lean really heavily on the M. I think what we're trying to do when we build out MVPs, whether it's for our core product or for additional things we're considering, is really building it out as light as we possibly can to get the justification that this is the right solution to the problem that we're seeing. So for us, we have a full stack product. We have a dashboard that users can log into. We also have multiple ways to integrate with us. That's something that was really important to me in an MVP is not assuming that we were going to be able to kind of plug into the current accounting systems that everyone's using and instead providing multiple ways to integrate, whether that's uploading data to an FTP server, whether that's uploading smaller files directly to the browser, or maybe that is actually integrating with our API, but focusing, I think, our MVP efforts towards how do we make it really easy to use instead of how do we blow out this long list of features we're thinking about. We can save that for later if the core feature ends up being really useful. But as far as tools, we've tried to stick with industry standard tools, which has made it I think, easier to onboard new people onto the team. So we're built on AWS. We've used some kind of standard libraries where we can. We're big AG Grid fans. Let's stay on the MVP for a minute. With any MVP, you got to make certain decisions and trade-offs. And I hear, you know, some seeds of those decisions and, you know, choosing industry standard technology or how you focus the product. Tell me about how you went about making those decisions and, and specifically, I'm curious about how you coped with them. My personal background is science research. So my ideas around product, I think, really stem from my experience with that. I come at it with hypotheses. Feature ideas are just hypotheses. I think these are things that'll be useful, but I, I don't really know. I'm not the end user. We make a lot of trade-offs of how much work do we need to do to prove these hypotheses, whether it's a set of target customers we're really interested in, whether it's a set of features we think will be useful. We can always come back and rebuild it if it ends up being the right solution to that problem. But honestly, more often than not at a startup, we're wrong on a lot of these. So making trade-offs to say, okay, this is how we're going to build this out to get this info. And then if this ends up being right, we're going to rebuild this in a way that really works with the info we now have. This episode is encrypted by Cypherstash. Data breaches are becoming a fact of life. Know why? One of the reasons is because developers lack the right tooling to get the job done, i.e. encryption at rest tools are complex and inadequate. The solution? 
encryption in use with Cypherstash. Cypherstash uses searchable encryption in use technology, providing continuous and universal protection for sensitive data. With Cypherstash, you can turn your existing database into a vault, utilizing zero trust key management, SQL native, and with no code. Though encryption is complicated, Cypherstash is easy to use. The tool fully supports SQL via a drop-in driver replacement, supporting the query types you know and love today. And did we mention it's fast? For queries over 100 million records, you can expect additional overhead of less than one millisecond. It's a no-brainer. Get started by reviewing their docs or downloading sample projects in Rails or Node plus SQLize today. Visit cypherstash.com slash codestory and get started protecting your data. Let's move forward then. You've got this episode is supported by Treble. This day and age, APIs are a fact of life. And as such, product and engineering teams need tooling that is lightweight, real-time, and data-rich to help them ship and maintain APIs faster. That's where Treble comes in. Treble is an all-in-one platform for the entire API lifecycle. The product offers world-class monitoring and observability, providing more than 40 data points for each request, enabling you to understand everything from performance to user behavior. Dashboards help connecting your entire team for lifecycle collaboration. Documentation is automatically generated, saving massive amounts of time for your development team with every new release. And setting up Treble, super easy and fast. In three simple steps, you can be up and running with their platform. Their pricing is designed to support API teams of all sizes. So get started with Treble today and automate your API ops. Did I mention they have a free forever plan? Find out more by visiting treble.com slash codestory. That's T-R-B-L-L-E dot com slash codestory. That's your MVP. It's working. You're getting some traction. How did you progress the product and mature it? And I'm curious about how you built your roadmap and how you went about deciding, okay, this is the next most important thing to build or to address with Eisen. Speaking of the science background, this one's a little bit more art than science. I really wish there was a better science towards building a roadmap, but I think it comes back to analyzing that evidence we've collected and saying, okay, one customer has asked for this, but I think this is actually indicative of a problem other banks have. So even though maybe we've had two customers ask for this other thing, this one actually feels like one that's going to be really useful for this broader set of customers that we're kind of actively looking to expand into really looking at, is this going to help in the market that you're trying to progress into? Or is this maybe a set of customers that are slightly adjacent to that, where they're ones that maybe were your initial target customers, but aren't necessarily asking for the same things as some of your other customer types? I think it's something for us to balance as we build for both fintechs and banks. And a lot of this is tying together those two halves of the equation that work very closely on the achievement process, but have slightly different needs. Let's switch to team then. So tell me about how you built your team and what do you look for in those people to indicate that they are the winning horses to join you? I think there's one phrase that I use to describe the people that I really want on my team. And it's that they're humblingly good. They're so good that I feel really humble to be working in their presence and with them. And by them being so much better at their job than I would be doing it, it's really easy to delegate. I learn a lot from them and I think we're a 10X better team as a result. How do you go about maintaining that team culture, right? It's, it's super important to have a team culture, to have the right people. How do you maintain that as you move forward? 
I think this answer probably changes based on team size and company stage. We're still small enough that we can all gather in the same place. We all gathered in the same place last year, and that was really helpful just to all get to meet in person. We have most of our team together in New York City, but a couple people who aren't. And it was really nice to kind of build those bonds and get to meet off of the screen. For those of us in New York, we do most of the time in person. So we're able to have lunch together. We're able to draw on a whiteboard. I think that's been really helpful at our stage just because things are so fluid. We're getting new information every day. And I don't necessarily have a great way to communicate it because it's a little bit of a mind dump. So it's nice to be able to just draw things on a board that I'm thinking about without it being super well-structured and formatted for, say, Slack. So it's been really helpful for us to have that in-person environment to lean on. This episode is supported by Terso. Terso is the open-source edge database from the creators of LibSQL, the popular fork of SQLite. If you put your edge computing close to your users, like with Netlify or Vassell edge functions or Cloudflare workers, you should put your data there too in order to maximize performance gains at the edge. Terso makes it easy. With a developer experience of SQLite and a distributed database, you can replicate much closer to your users than traditional database offerings in the cloud. Terso's lightweight, easy to use, and free to get started. The team at Terso is offering a generous starter plan specifically for Code Story listeners. Head over to terso.tech slash codestory and get started today. That's T-U-R-S-O dot tech slash codestory. Terso, welcome to the Data Edge. This episode was automatically optimized by Cast. If you run cloud-native software on AWS, Google Cloud, or Azure, you know how out of hand the bill can get. This uncertainty hurts your business, but you can solve it with Cast AI. Cast AI automates cloud costs, performance, and security management for hundreds of companies of all sizes. The platform's customers begin saving immediately and cut an average of over 60%. So before you go and sign a multi-year contract with a cloud provider or lay people off, check out what Cast AI can do for you. To get you saving even faster, Cast AI is offering a free cloud cost audit with a personal consultation. Visit cast.ai slash codestory to get started. Let's flip to scalability then. So this will be interesting. I love all of the myriad of answers here. Um, did you build this to scale efficiently from day one? Or are, are you fighting this as you grow and gain traction in, in any capacity? So I think there's two halves to scalability. There's the tech and infrastructure of, can we actually scale this up if we increased our number of users? That, I think, has been easier for us just because a lot of modern infrastructure makes that a lot easier to accomplish. The other half of this, which is a lot harder, is sophistication of the product itself and sophistication of the code base. I think that's one where we have to really fight it, where we have all of these ideas of features and everyone on the team has such great ideas. We call all of these things we're thinking about shiny objects and we try to keep them on a shelf until we have enough justification to build them. I think the alternative is we'd bite off way more than we can chew and we maybe try and scale up the product, but not necessarily in a way where everything is completely bulletproof. So then as you step out on the balcony and you look across all that you've built, what are you most proud of? I think the thing that I'm the most proud of is the ability that I think I've developed over the last couple of years to build conviction 
in an idea, but still really be open to new evidence to justify changing my mind. I think that's really the core of the product market fit journey, because every idea, every product, you can always find some critique of it. And that critique may or may not be a fatal flaw. So I think what I've been really proud is kind of sorting through critique, both my own and external, to figure out what about this is limiting? Is it a problem with the idea at its core? Is it something that, okay, this is going to affect how we think about growth and expansion? Is this going to affect how we think about the ability to build the product? Kind of separating out where that critique is and being able to build conviction in the path. Let's flip the script a little bit. Tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it. I alluded to this earlier, but we're not a team that likes to be in the spotlight. I think especially myself, I don't like big birthday parties. I don't like anything where I'm the center of attention. And I think that caused me personally to kind of undervalue the act of putting things online, of of building a presence both for myself and for the company online, which has led us to, I think, having a rather stealth approach accidentally. And I think operating in stealth can have its advantages. It wasn't something that we were really intentionally doing. We started to change that a little bit over the last month, and it's something we're really looking to kind of course correct on. I think it splits in two a little bit. There's the kind of just general reputation you build for yourself as subject matter experts, as people who really deeply understand the problem you're solving, which you can get to maybe in the first, more likely second conversation with someone. But that takes a lot of interest and commitment to kind of get to that point, to prove out your knowledge of the area, to prove out how the product's working. And as we start to kind of bring some of that forward and let that be someone, something that someone can kind of explore through themselves and understand how we're thinking about this really complex process, how we're approaching this differently, I think enables us to have richer conversations in earlier in the process where we're not having to start by explaining, okay, here's how we think about a sheetment, here's how we're thinking about it differently, here's how we're processing data, being able to bring some of that up front. And so we're starting to lean more into going to conferences and speaking at conferences and leaving our four walls of the office building to meet with people in person, take trips to go to bank headquarters, to have kind of those conversations really front. So I think we will be at a lot more conferences this year than we were last year. Okay, Stephanie, so this will be fun. What does the future look like for the product and for your team? I'm really excited to get to pull some of those shiny objects off the shelf. So I think the future is going to look like strategically picking shiny objects from the shelf and getting to add that on. There's a draconian approach to MVPs that is rewarding, but also I think really frustrating as an engineer and product person where there's so many things you want to build and you can't do it right now. I'm really excited to be able to take the time to build non-MVP features that are super intellectually interesting that I think are going to be a great addition to the product as we move into this next phase of growth. Okay, let's switch to you. Who influences the way that you work? Name a person or many persons or, or something you look up to and why. One thing I reference really often that I think is really core to how I operate in engineering and with product is Cunningham's Law. It's the law that it's a lot easier to critique things that you can see. 
it's a lot faster to get to someone to tell you why something's wrong than if you post a question on the internet asking for the right answer. So I do that a lot in my work where I will build out a mock, I will build out something quick, and I'll put that in front of someone because it is a lot easier for them to say, why not? And then I can come back and build something that works well as opposed to trying to have a conversation around, okay, what's going to be the best approach here, which I think can be a little amorphous sometimes to get really good input. Okay, so we talked about a mistake earlier, but this is a little different spin. If you could go back to the beginning, what would you do different? Or where would you consider taking a different approach? It doesn't have to be you know, a mistake or something that went wrong. could have went well, but maybe you'd tweak it a little bit. Something I would tweak on a redo and that we've been really doing differently more recently as opposed to when we first started out is how we think about hiring. We really focused on full-time roles when we started out. And I think that's really limiting in a lot of ways where there's some people who have really awesome skill sets who kind of industry veterans who maybe aren't looking for a full-time role, but are open to part-time advising, slightly different structures. Now that we've been bringing on people who are more part-time, I think we've really elevated the skill set of the team without really weighing down the ship. We've used this analogy of as a product market fit searching startup, we're a ship that's kind of sailing as we navigate, making some turns, and the weight of the ship can sometimes make it harder to turn. Weight can come from a bloated heavy product, a really large code base without the justification for, or sometimes it's just a really big team who's all working in one direction. It can be hard to sometimes change growing in a different direction. So recently we've been a lot more fluid and flexible on what the right addition of skills to the team is instead of thinking in rigid full-time boxes. Okay, well, last question, Stephanie. So you're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world. Can't wait to show it off to you right there on the plane. What advice do you give that person having gone down this road a bit? I think this is a funny question because... I'm probably that person that everyone hates. I love a plain chat. So this is an entirely plausible question for me. I have met other founders on planes and gotten demos and learned about their products. So I would love this kind of conversation. And I think the number one thing I would say is pick who you want critique from. Find the people you really trust their feedback, who you can be really open about your challenges with. What I was saying earlier, if you can find something to critique in any idea, and I'm sure I could find something to critique in their idea, but my opinion probably wouldn't matter as a random plain participant, likely in a different industry. What's most important is finding the people whose critique you can really rely on, who deeply understands the problems and type of company you're trying to build out. That's great advice. Well, Stephanie, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for telling the creation story of Eisen. Thanks so much for having me. It was really fun to chat through with you. And this concludes another chapter of Code Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Laphart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. 
products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit Amfem.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.